we're in Second Samuel now. Uh, so if you if you put the little ribbon in your Bible and hold your place, you'll notice we just jumped quite a few pages. So Second Samuel chapter seven. But we are following this curriculum that our 9 a.m. Sunday school uses. It's a curriculum designed to have the entire family, the entire church, really, if you use it in that way, on the same passage of Scripture. There's a devotion guide that goes with it, so you can extend the conversation into the home. And it's also designed to tour the Bible in three years, so that the church is equipped with an answer for the hope that is within us, that we have an apologetic uh, defense of the faith. And that would mean we can't just tell people we believe in the Bible. We better know the message of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, how they fit together. That this is a, a, a story that reveals to us who God is, why He created, why He made us in his image, what went wrong, how he's going to fix it, and then how reality wraps up. I mean, these, this is a big story. It's a really big story, and you either believe it by faith and believe and accept all of it as the answer to all of life's biggest questions, um, or you reject it. But you're not honoring God or His Word by just taking little stories here and there and saying, well, this little story is precious to me and, and this little verse is precious to me. But I'm not so sure about all this other stuff. No, you've got to take the whole Bible in totality. It's what it's designed to do. Reveal God and reveal the, true, the truth about all of reality. And so we come to 2 Samuel 7, which turns out to be one of the most pivotal passages in all of God's Word. And yet, it's an easy passage to just read over. We call 2 Samuel 7 the uh, Davidic covenant. And if you've been tracking with us, or you've been a Christian for any length of time, you understand that the Bible is filled with covenants covenant, an agreement, a contract between two parties. We understand covenants. We have the covenant of marriage. We have contracts. If you've bought a house at any time in your life, you realize the contract is like that. And talking to some of our realtors or people who work in escrow offices, the stack just keeps getting thicker. I'm not sure anyone really knows what's on all those papers that we're signing. But you want that house so bad, you just keep signing. Recently, the leaders of the free world, and not-so-free world, all met in France to talk about climate change, and they were going to sign a covenant or a treaty. And they did sign, except what they signed wasn't really a covenant or treaty at all. It just agreed that there's a problem, and we'll meet again next year to talk about the problem. Because the covenant people wanted them to decide started including the giving of money and the taking of money. And nobody is signing on that line. So I guess they'll meet again next year, and there'll be a lot of fanfare 
and a lot of shaking of hands and a lot of smiling and a lot of show of respect and then behind closed doors. I wouldn't trust that country as far as I could throw it. I am not signing a covenant with them. And I want to draw your attention there before we actually get into the text to think about covenants, promises, contracts, two parties entering into an agreement. Covenants always involve trust. Always involve trust. And so the covenant is always set up with, here here are the parties, here's what we're agreeing to, here's the blessings if we keep our end of the deal, and then here's the penalties if we renege. And why do we need that clause at the end? It's almost like we're expecting one another to break the covenant. It would be naive we would say, to enter into some kind of contract or covenant or agreement without some kind of um, stipulation or some kind of plan B in case one of the parties reneges. And that's why the world leaders wouldn't sign the kind of covenant that they were promising to the world. It's easy to get in front of everyone and say, it's a new world order and we trust our neighbors and we trust the countries of the world to come And this is the greatest problem that mankind has to face right now. And if we don't do something about this, we're all going to overheat and the human race is going to die out. And then they all meet and nobody actually acts as if they believe in what they just said. It's back to business as usual. So we enter into covenants... And covenants always involve trust, but sinful man can only be trusted to do one thing. Sin. And we become suspicious of one another. So, well, I'm not going to sin, but they're going to renege. So I need to reposition myself anticipating your sin. So I'll justify my sin and my lack of trust because of your poor character. And of course, they're doing the same thing to you. It was President Reagan who said, trust, but verify. That's right. And yet think about this. God, who is without sin and will always keep his end of the deal no matter what, What on earth is he doing entering into covenant with people like us? Who would do that? You wouldn't do that. If you knew you were entering into a contractual agreement with someone you knew was going to fail, who only brings liability to the deal, you bring all the assets They bring all the liabilities. Why would you ever enter into that kind of covenant? Now, in our sinfulness and our pride, we think that is what we do. If you're honest with yourself, let's say in your marriage covenant, in your sinful heart, you you were sizing up your spouse and saying, well, he or she could bring a lot of good things into my life. And so you're saying, would my life be enhanced by bringing this person into my life and agreeing to a covenant with them? 
And the reason you didn't jump into the whole proposal right away or accepting the proposal was because you had to weigh, do a cost-benefit analysis. Assets and liabilities. I'm going to lose a little freedom here. I'm going to have to make some compromises. This could affect me financially. Or it could enhance me financially. But at the end of the day, if we're honest with our prideful hearts, we're thinking we bring mostly assets to the deal and they're bringing liabilities. And you're like, well, I can overlook those liabilities for the assets they bring into the... And they're doing the same thing to you, but you don't know they're doing that to you because our pride blinds us. The problem is later in the marriage is we tend to continue to build up in our mind our assets, and build up in our mind their liabilities until there's such a disparity that no one will blame me for breaking my contract. Now, if God intended human marriage to be a picture of Christ and the church, think about this for a second. We're the bride. Christ is the groom. He brings only assets to the marriage, we bring nothing but liabilities. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, He enters into marriage covenant with us. Isn't that amazing? And He knew what He was getting Himself into. God knew. It's not like We are where later, after signing on the dotted line, months later, years later, we're like, I had no idea they were like this. Bait and switch. If I had known... Well, no one's completely honest when we're going into a contract. We're not going to tip our hands. We always keep a good poker face. When we're dating, we put our best foot forward and our best character forward. Nobody says, there's something you should know about me. (laughs) I'm selfish, self-absorbed, often throw tantrums. Very difficult to please. Demanding. Arrogant. Will you marry me? (laughs) It's kind of what pastors attempt to do in premarital counseling is let's get the liabilities out on the table and make a sober-minded decision. Keeping in mind, you bring plenty of liabilities too. The other person is going to have to extend grace. You're going to have to extend grace. The question is, can you live with these liabilities? I like to hear stories of, of good Christian dads who ask suitors, would-be suitors, do you know what my daughter's greatest issue is, most difficult stumbling block, and are you willing to live with that for the rest of your life? Don't think you can change her. We've tried. (laughs) And, And vice versa. You should know that about one another. These things are ingrained, and in Christ we're new creatures. Amen. 
but old habits die hard. So, God would enter covenant with people like us. How amazing. Nothing to gain, everything to lose. And yet, Jesus has taught us that to find your life, you must lose it. The Christian walk is so counterintuitive at times. Enhancing life may mean losing something precious to you, your freedom, your right to be right all the time. So through death brings life. So we're going to look at the Davidic covenant this morning, and I hope with that setting you'll look at covenants with new eyes. Just to catch you up to speed, and really read the rest of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel, it's a fascinating, it is filled with adventure and intrigue, and, and um, you've got Saul who's falling deeper and deeper into insanity, he knows he needs David to be a successful king, but he hates David. Psychologists call that cognitive dissonance. Two things that can't peacefully coexist in your mind and you don't know how to reconcile them. I need David, but I hate David. And David has his own cognitive dissonance. I want to honor God by honoring his anointed Saul, but the man is trying to kill me. How do I pull that off? And I'm married to his daughter and his son's my best friend. It's, it's a fascinating read. So I encourage you to read. Lots of lessons that can be learned there. Spoiler alert, though, and I'm not going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> going to see it tomorrow, so don't. Don't talk to me about it either. But spoiler alert, Saul dies and his sons. And David becomes king over the entire kingdom eventually. And they bring the ark to Jerusalem. And there's that whole story about the ark's about to tip over. And Uzzah tries to prop it up. And he dies because he's mishandled the ark. And then as it's entering the city, David dances before the Lord. And his wife despises him for embarrassing himself, acting in ways that kingly protocol would forbid. But David can't help himself. He loves the Lord, and the ark was the symbol of God's glory, that the glory of God rests between the cherubim on the lid of the ark, the mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle blood on the Day of Atonement. It's exciting times. God has delivered Israel from the hands of their enemies. Eventually, there's going to be a time of great peace and prosperity. Good things are happening. And David wants to build a proper house for God. Instead of meeting in this tent, in this tabernacle, you know, the tent that they stitched together in the wilderness... I mean, imagine what this thing looked like. I mean, it's a, it's a glorious thing when you've seen pictures of it, but the pictures we always see 
of the tabernacle are when it's at its cleanest and finest and freshest. But the thing is outside in the Middle East, constantly having to replace the fabric and clean it. Oh, the dusting. Could you imagine? Who hates dusting? Can I get an amen? Tehachapi, you dust and you walk away and come back in the room and it's like, didn't I just dust? Multiply that times a hundred in the Middle East. There's nothing but dust over there. It's sand. It's dirt. And David's living in a house built with cedar and he, he thinks this is wrong. Why should I, a human king, get to live in a nicer house than God? And so let's read 2 Samuel 7, and we'll see David's plan to build God a house. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Don't you love David's heart here? Saul never cared about this. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Seemed like a good idea to Nathan. Seemed like David's heart's in the right place. We need a permanent place for the ark. We have rest from our enemies. Yeah, let's build a proper temple. I want to do a little aside here. I've been thinking a lot lately about decision-making. Nathan gave me a great little book that Jennifer and I read over the Thanksgiving break. And I think even our, our small group's going to go through this book together the first of the year because our life is filled with decision-making. All day long, the decisions just keep coming at you. And a good portion of pastoral counseling and the kind of counseling you do for other people Biblical, we're all biblical counselors. If you are a Christian, you are a biblical counselor. People are going to come to you for advice, and I would hope you would give them biblical advice and not just your opinion. The more you know God's word, the better biblical counsel you can give. But in the top five topics of biblical counseling, it will be decision-making. People coming to you not knowing what to do. And often they want you to make the decision for them. So that when things go wrong, they can blame you. Or because they're in a disagreement with somebody else on what to do, and they want to say, well, pastor said, we should do what I wanted to do. But, For you, probably, not being a pastor, what you're going to see a lot of is just lots of good options, but you can't do all of them. And we live in a time now where for two generations, our culture has told us, you can do whatever you want to do, you can have it all without compromise, You deserve it all. 
you're gifted enough to do whatever you want and have whatever you want and achieve whatever you want. And then you go out and live in the real world and you realize the world doesn't work that way. I can't have everything I want. Some things are mutually exclusive. If you take this, you can't have this. And so our young people get stuck in career choices. I don't know if I choose this career path and and go back to graduate school and sink all that money into that. What if I don't like doing that? Marriage. Okay, like, I understand if I get married, that's it. I can't play the field anymore. So I'll just not get married. Or maybe I should get married. I don't know. Pastor, tell me what to do. I'm not going to tell you whether to get married or not get married. You're going to have to make that decision with your girlfriend, boyfriend, parents, and God. I can help you think biblically about the decision, but I won't make the decision for you, and I understand what the problem is. You don't want to make a decision, because as soon as you make a decision about a choice, you've eliminated options. Now, we have no problem with making an order at Starbucks, right? And it's ridiculous. I was talking to Mrs. Main last Sunday. Remember when coffee was like you got one choice? And that was, you know, would you like it in a mug or a teacup, you know? And if you're lucky, they had cream and sugar. And if you're really lucky, it was real cream and not some powder. And now you can have your coffee any way you want. And it's fun to joke about the different orders people make at Starbucks. One of my students likes to say, uh, double sleeve, no cup, just, just to be funny. A couple of coffee drinkers giggled at that one, but the rest are like, how does that work? That's the point, you know. It's gotten so ridiculous, our world has told us you deserve to have things just the way you want them, but the world doesn't work that way. So let me give you just, as an aside here, you might want to write these down, just three three things to think about when you have a decision to make and you're stuck. Number one, is it biblical? Like if God says this is a sin, that you can't choose that. You can't do that. Is it biblical? So, there are black and whites in the Bible. Well, I'm thinking about getting married, but I don't want to because I can't have as much you-know-what. You shouldn't be having that anyways until you're married. So, that helps make the choice a little easier. There wasn't two choices. It was... If that's what you want to do, you're going to have to get married. You notice how the Bible can narrow down choices in a, in, a, in a heartbeat. And yet, that still leaves all kinds of choices that don't really have sin involved. So we go to the next level of filter. Is it noble? Is, is my heart in the right place? Am I doing this for the glory of God or for my own glory? Am I doing this... To serve others or to serve myself? Am I doing this strictly because I think it will bring me pleasure and happiness? Am I going into this eyes wide open? So when we start getting into the gray areas of decision making, we need to start looking at what our heart motive is. 
So is it biblical? Is it is it noble? Is it biblical? Is it noble? And let me tell you this: as if you put a note next to noble, nobody's motives are one hundred percent pure or evil. Always there are mixed motives. Be honest with yourself. I've counseled some people who beat themselves up because they oh they can never seem to arrive at pure motives, and they think there's all these. Christians who are fully sanctified out there, who all their decision-making is 100% for God. When I hear someone say, my decisions are 100% for God, I'm like, you are lying to yourself. When, when did you become glorified? I, I, as far as I know from the Bible, that doesn't happen until you get to glory in heaven. In the meantime, we work at trying, with the help of God, His Word, and His Holy Spirit to make our motives as pure as we possibly can this side of heaven. But we need to be honest with ourselves and say, what's really going on in my heart? I think David had pretty pure motives here, but I I would assume that we will find out in heaven that he had some other motives going on there too. But at face value, he was embarrassed. He thought it was wrong that he would have a nicer house than God. Maybe that is the mixed motive. I don't want people thinking that I'm presumptuous and have a nicer house than God, so let's build God a really nice, really, really, really nice house, and then I can have a really, really nice house, but compared to God's house, I won't look ostentatious or avaricious, you know. Thirdly, that is it biblical, is it noble, is it reasonable? Actually, this is where people get stuck the most. They want what's unreasonable. And sometimes they just need to come to you so you can kind of lovingly smack them over the head and say, that's not going to happen. And you're, you're driving yourself nuts and you're becoming discontent and you're sinning now wanting something you can't have. So take that decision off the table. Or sometimes people come around and they say, God's given me this great idea. I think it's biblical. I'm doing it for God. I think it's noble. And you're like, yeah, but you have you lack the talent, the money, the resources, and the leadership to pull that off. Well, yeah, well, that's where you guys come in. So you have the vision and I have to pull it off? I don't think that's reasonable. Maybe biblical, maybe noble, not reasonable. And that may be the hardest thing to hear. Remember, it's always harder to hear you're being foolish than you're being sinful. It's always harder to hear when the world's not going to tell you. Self-esteem movement. We're not going to tell kids that they don't have the talent or the gifting or the resources to achieve their dreams. It's too bad, too, because we have a generation of disenchanted people who don't want to move forward in life because they were told whatever they put their mind to, whatever their dream was, they could have it. And they can't. And yet there's so many wonderful things God's made available to them, but it's not the thing they've set their heart on their whole life. And so they'll never be content 
with the amazing, undeserved grace and blessings God is ready to pour out on them because the one thing He said you can't have is what they want. So sometimes as good friends, as counselors, we need to tell each other, hey, this is unreasonable. Like Nathan said, his NBA dreams dashed. Good player, not that good. That's not to say we crush people's dreams. Some amazing things have been accomplished when the world was saying, no way on earth you're going to pull that off. Well, you left God out of the equation. With these things, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. But that can't be your bumper sticker mantra of chasing after dreams that are never going to happen. Well, you know... Oh, ye of little faith. You know you have people in your life who just never seem to get moving forward in life because they're still chasing the impossible dream. So, what do you think? David's idea, is it biblical? Yeah, sure. Noble? Yes. Reasonable? Amen. If anyone's going to build a house for God, the king... He's got access to the resources, the time, the talent. Skilled as a leader. But sometimes we have a good desire, but it may not be God's desire. And I think that's the hardest thing for people in the decision making. What if I move forward with this and it doesn't work out the way I thought? That happens a lot. And it's not a deal breaker. You accept God's will and you, and you move on and you make a different decision. You make your decisions with your hands open and you'll be ready for God to change the plans, trusting in His character that His plans are going to be better than your plans. So that's what happens to David. Even after Nathan the prophet said, the Lord will be with you in all that you do, God comes to Nathan at night and says, I want you to say this to David. In the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? Just because you can doesn't always mean you should. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. About hundreds of years, God saying, I've been fine with this tent. And I gave the instructions to build this tent. Trust me, if I wanted a glorious house, I would have had it built by now. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So it's a a mild rebuke, which 
tells me that, indeed, David had some mixed motives. We just don't know what the mixed motives were, but it's a mild rebuke. Have I ever once said, I I need a house of cedar? No, I called you to shepherd my people. Shepherds don't live in permanent houses. They need to be out and about with the sheep. That's my heart, that the leaders of Israel shepherd my people. Now, God had a house, but he has plans for a better house. He did have the tent and the tabernacle, and he is going to have a temple built. David's son Solomon is going to build that temple. And we find out from God that the problem is David is a man of warfare and bloodshed. And God's house is a house of prayer. So God will get his house. But keep in mind, because we've read ahead in the story, right? As glorious as Solomon's temple will be, and God's glory fills the temple at its inauguration, eventually because of Israel's apostasy and idolatry, God's glory leaves the temple and the temple becomes destroyed and dismantled. And then he allows his people to come back and they rebuild the temple, but it's not as nice as the original temple. But again, God's not so concerned with what his earthly house, quote-unquote, looks like. That second temple gets embellished, gets a facelift by King Herod. I mean, that takes us to where our focus is now with Christmas coming. And Herod builds this glorious temple for his own glory. And eventually in AD 70, again because of Israel's apostasy, this time rejecting Jesus Christ, their Messiah, that temple also is destroyed. And the Temple Mount stands today without a temple, although there are plans for a new temple. And all the accoutrements that go in the temple, a committee has already built them. The menorah and the the table and the bowls. It's all been made. I was just talking to Caleb uh, Elms, who went to Israel uh, through Master's College, and he got to go to the museum and see all those temple accoutrements that are ready for a temple. So depending on your eschatology, what you believe the Bible says about end times, some believe that another earthly temple will be built in Israel. And that is where Jesus will reign for 10,000 years. So, ironically, and we've seen as we've been going through the scriptures that God likes to do this kind of thing. David says, I want to build you a house. God says, I don't want you to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. So let's hear about the house that God wants to build David. First, though, I wanted to take our attention to Isaiah 66 and remind us of this. 
This is just before Israel is defeated by the Babylonian Empire and taken into captivity and the temple is going to be destroyed. Through the prophet Isaiah, God reminds his people, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Think of Europe and all these glorious houses of worship built to God, and they're empty now. Or they become a restaurant, or in some cases, a mosque. And some of those buildings took so many years to build that the original architects and builders weren't around to see it finished, but they knew that this glorious God deserves a glorious house, and it's okay if I don't get to see the finished product. And you might be asking, why would God allow all of that manpower, all of that work, all of that labor done to the glory of God to fall in disrepair and ruin? It says right here, I I don't need an earthly house. What I'm looking for is a place where there's people who are humble, contrite of spirit and who tremble at my word and that's not Europe anymore and so these beautiful churches are empty ultimately the writer of Hebrews talks about a better tabernacle a better house God is building no more tents no more tabernacles he's building a spiritual forever tabernacle Even the Apostle Paul talks about our earthly tent in which the Holy Spirit dwells. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells inside of us. Isn't that amazing? And yet, my tent's wearing out. Some of your tents are more worn out than mine. Some of your tents are less worn out than mine, but all of our tents are wearing out. And Paul looks forward to when we will get a better, everlasting tent. <laughs> and all God's seniors say, so <laughs> 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 you know, amens from the young people whenever we say that. I like my tent. <laughs> the vein, how can I improve on this? Just, just wait. Just you wait. Okay, so the second part then is the, the Davidic covenant. Here we get to the covenant. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And here come the promises. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. A lot of promises there. Good promises. 
What's your Christmas list look like? This is a good list. And it gets better. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's a play on word with house. Yes, we're going to build a physical house. The house can also mean your kingdom. Your, your lineage, your heritage. There's this uh, talk on HGTV, your forever house. This is it. This is the last one. We're never moving again. God is literally promising David a literal forever house. So it's obviously not the physical temple because we know that one's going to be destroyed. Earthly things don't last. A forever house has to be something spiritual. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. I want you on your own this week before we come back for Christmas Eve to read David's prayer. And just meditate on it and pray through it. There's a part in the prayer where he says, Oh God, who am I that you would choose me for this? Isn't that beautiful? That is, that is the attitude we need to have when we think of our salvation. Oh God, who am I that you would choose me to be called your own, to be adopted by you, to have a forever house with you for all eternity? And then David says, based on the promises you've just made to me, I'm going to pray back to you with courage. And he says, oh Lord, do what you just said you'll do. And you're like, well, that, can we pray that way to God? Yes, when we read his word and read his promises and we know he never breaks his contract or his covenant, you can pray with boldness and humility simultaneously and say, oh God, do what you said you would do for me. Sanctify me with thy word. Make me like Jesus Christ. Teach me to love like Christ. You said you would do it. Do it. For your glory. For my good. If you want to pray prayers of boldness, read scripture and pray God's word right back at him. So, read that. We don't have time to go through it today. But I did want to talk, though, about a problem with the covenant. I mean, it's a problem for us. It's not a problem for God. Theologians argue over whether the Davidic covenant is unconditional or conditional. If it's unconditional, then it doesn't matter what David does or any of his descendants. All the promises, the great name for David, the place for Israel, the rest from your enemies, 
and a, a, a throne that endures forever, that one of David's descendants would reign on David's throne forever. If it's unconditional, all those things are happening no matter what David and his descendants do. And yet there are parts of the covenant that seem conditional. And so some theologians say it's an unconditional covenant, and others say it's conditional. It's both. That's why there's the argument. There's conditional elements and unconditional elements. All the promises God made are unconditional, but whether or not you get to enjoy them right now are conditional. So inasmuch as David and all future kings in his heritage, in his lineage, I should say, obey God's word, they will enjoy right now the blessings of the covenant. If they disobey, God says, you will be like a son to me and I will, I will rebuke you. I'll chastise you with the rods of men, meaning I will bring some other nation in to punish you because I love you. And a loving father doesn't turn a blind eye to sin and disobedience. As a father lovingly disciplines his children, so the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. Amen? Does not the scriptures promise that? Amen. Even if I totally mutilated the verse? I'm, I'm, I'm 80% good at memorizing God's word, word for word, but not, not that gift that other people have where it just comes out word for word. So you know the verse I'm talking about. It's a proverb. So the conditional element is tied to the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, here's the blessings, here's the curses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Even though this is a new covenant, it's still tied to the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. So we have a, we have a problem. God is promising a forever covenant, a forever house to people who can't even string together a couple of good days of obedience. How is this going to work? In fact, in 1 Kings 11, when Solomon falls into gross disobedience, gross idolatry, marrying hundreds of wives and then building temples to their pagan deities all over Israel, the Lord says this to Solomon, "...because you've done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes..." which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So you see, there's consequences, but God is still being faithful to honor his covenant with David. And so, theologians will often talk about this concept of already but not yet. Parts of the covenant already fulfilled and being fulfilled. Some parts of the covenant not yet. Well, when is the not yet going to come? When we get a good king who stops disobeying? Well, when's that going to happen? Well, the prophet Jeremiah says, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Branch is a metaphor, metaphorical name for Messiah. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So the divided kingdom will come back together. And this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, notice all caps, Lord Yahweh, our righteousness. No earthly human king could ever take that title for himself. And so clearly Jeremiah is prophesying a king in David's line that would somehow be a man but be God himself. And they didn't understand this side of the cross, how that would work. We understand. We have more revelation. We understand Jesus, fully God, taking on human flesh. He's God. He's man. He's the God-man. He is the promised Messiah, branch, and heir to David's throne. And let me leave you this morning with, with something that will, I hope, so strengthen your faith this morning. You know, the, the whole story, we believe it and we get it and we proclaim it, but we have moments where we're like, really? Like it's almost too fanciful to, to be real. And yet, there's many, you know, who mock the story and they're like, ah. And yet God gives us these amazing details in Scripture that tell us, yes, this is real, this is true. God is at work. If we back up to Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-eight, we find out that the second to last king of Israel, the second to last king of Israel before the Babylonian exile, is a man named Jeconiah. He's often called Kaniah. And he, did, he was 18 years old. He only reigned for three months, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And basically at this point, the Lord said, enough is enough of these disobedient human kings. And he says, through Jeremiah, Is this man, Kaniah, a despised shattered jar? Or, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. The land is spitting out Israel and its disobedient kings. And Jeremiah is calling the land to be a witness against what God is about to say. I mean... Who does God use as his witnesses? Sinful people are horrible witnesses to testify to what God is going to say. So often the prophets would point to God's creation as witness. Land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Write this down. Write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So anyone who can trace their lineage back to Jeconiah is not eligible to sit on David's throne and rule. 
And so we have a problem because we get to the book of Matthew and Matthew opens with a genealogy, which seems strange to the world, but if you're tracking biblically, you understand exactly why Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy. If Jesus is the Messiah, he needs to reign on David's forever throne and he needs to be in the line of David. And so we start reading through the genealogy and we run into a problem. I don't have the whole genealogy here, but look at verse 11. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And it goes on, and we see eventually Joseph, Jesus' father, is in the line of David, but right through Jeconiah. Okay, God, you said none of Jeconiah's descendants will sit on David's throne. But... Jesus' father is in the line of Jeconiah. So he's eligible in the bloodline, but not eligible because of the curse. Is God just going to ignore the curse? Is he going to contradict himself? Is he going to say, ah, curse, whatever, never mind? No, God is amazing. He's powerful. He's true. He never lies. Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. God is Jesus' father. So he is in the line, technically, but not biologically. And so some might say, well, that's kind of playing fast and loose with things. I mean, he should be in the line biologically if he's truly going to be a descendant of David. Well, guess what? Luke gives us another genealogy in chapter 3 of his gospel, and it turns out that Mary is in the biological line of David. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God amazing? Problem solved. And not only that, if we think back all the way to the garden when man fell into sin and God gave his promise in Genesis 3.15, he cursed Satan And he says this. They call Genesis 3.15 the proto-evangelon, the first gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So you... Satan, you will inflict a uh, non-lethal wound, but he will... crush your head. He will deal a lethal blow to you. But the weird thing about this language is the seed of the woman, the woman doesn't have a seed. She has an egg. The man has the seed. Oh, now we get it. Yes, the virgin birth matters. The virgin birth matters. So Jesus has a right to the throne on his father father's side through Joseph, but avoiding the curse because Joseph's not his biological father. He has a right to the throne biologically through his mother, Mary, and the seed of the woman indeed crushed Satan's head, defeated death, Satan's only weapon. Therefore, what does this have to do with us? Because this covenant was made to the Jews. Any Jews in the room this morning? Welcome to our fellowship. Seeing no hands, 
I'll assume the rest of us are Gentiles. Does the Davidic covenant apply to us as Gentiles? You bet it does. In Acts 15.14, when Peter's laying hands on people and they're receiving the Holy Spirit and they're Gentiles, he's surprised. His salvation for the Gentiles as well. And he goes back to the Jerusalem council and James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of the Jerusalem council. And this is what they decide. Simeon, or Simon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and this is from the book of Amos, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called By my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. I will rebuild its ruins, the tent of David that has fallen, a remnant of mankind, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Jesus came to bring a new covenant. He fulfilled the Davidic covenant and then instituted a new covenant How do you get into covenant with God? He says, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Through faith we enter this covenant. And what a glorious covenant it is because it's unconditional in the sense that even though we will still stumble as believers... God will not stumble, and he is faithful to keep his promises. How awesome and amazing to be in covenant with a holy God. Father, thank you for entering into covenant with sinful man. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling the parts of the covenant we could not fulfill on our own, so that we could be credited with perfectly fulfilling the covenant. We know we actually haven't, Lord. But thank you, God, for treating us in and through Christ as if we have. What an amazing gift. What an amazing thought that you are building a forever house for all those who call on the name of the Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas.